1998, if you wanted to watch something good on TV, you had to park yourself in front of the screen and start flipping through the channels. And your choices were pretty limited by today's standards. More than likely, you'd end up watching a hospital drama like ER or a crime procedural like Law & Order or NYPD Blue. Maybe you were in the mood for a laugh, so you watch one of the many sitcoms centered around happy white people, like Friends or Home Improvement. But there was a small but loyal audience tuning into a show of a different kind. We can do this the hard way or, well, actually, there's just the hard way. That's fine with me. Are you sure? Now, this is not going to be pretty. We're talking violence, strong language, adult content. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Buffy was unlike anything else on television at the time. Sure, there was X-Files, but they didn't have a teenage girl and her band of misfits kicking vampire butt in between classes and cheerleading tryouts. Buffy's first season ratings were pretty modest, and throughout its seven-season run, it never ranked in the top 20 most-watched shows. But what it lacked in viewership, it made up for in fandom. As I watched it and I fell into this very specific world and universe with its own language, it has a very specific rhythm to it. Caroline Framke is the chief TV critic for Variety. It was the first show where I went, huh, um, that's a job. People get to make this show. I knew I wasn't the only person who had this experience, but I will say that I have been blown away by how many people I've heard from, especially within the entertainment industry. A lot of us got into this industry or felt like we had a place here or could bring something interesting and original because of work Whedon did. Joss Whedon is the writer and creator behind Buffy the Vampire Slayer. When his show premiered in 1997, it was edgy and different. It was about a teenage girl heroine, one who would more than likely be the girlfriend of the hero on any other show. Buffy Summers slayed demons and vampires weekly in the late 90s and early 2000s, and that was groundbreaking at the time. And for creating the show, Joss Whedon was heralded as a feminist ally and icon. There were online fan groups dedicated to him and feminist collectives that gave him awards. Even though, relatively speaking, maybe not as many people watched it as Game of Thrones or something at the time, its impact was huge in Hollywood. So I think there can't actually be enough said about his influence. And that influence was so huge that it landed Whedon a bunch of other shows that came to be known as the Whedonverse. There was, of course, Buffy, And then the spinoff, Angel, that was centered around Buffy's sometimes lover, sometimes nemesis, Vampire X. That show was on for five seasons. You know, there's a lot of people in this city need help. Wow. I'm not good with people. And then came Firefly, a short-lived space cowboy's adventure drama. Earth got used up, so we terraformed a whole new galaxy of Earths. Some rich and flush with the new technologies, some not so much. And then we'd have made Dollhouse. Another short-lived sci-fi drama where women's brains were wiped clean so they could take on other personas to serve wealthy clients. They have what everybody wants. They live every life, life. They have every skill, skill, every experience, experience. There's nothing real about it. They're programmed. That one even sounds gross. And these TV shows led to even bigger opportunities for Whedon. He directed the first Avengers movie in 2012 and Avengers Age of Ultron in 2015. He also created the show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I say all this to demonstrate just how big and far-reaching Whedon's influence is. But now, a new piece from Vulture is making a lot of people re-examine Whedon's career. 
this once very beloved sort of feminist nerd king of Hollywood uh, is actually and has actually been for many years an allegedly terrible boss who preyed on his female employees and belittled other people while making shows that seemed very progressive, very feminist, very self-aware in a way that apparently he was not in his personal life and as a boss himself. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, a conversation about the allegations against Joss Whedon. What happens when society creates a feminist icon out of a deeply flawed man? And what were the signs we missed all along? For me, as a teenager who loved his shows, it didn't bother me that a man had created the show because he understood, it seemed. And to sort of know now that he really didn't, it feels more like a betrayal. The allegations detailed in the Vulture story, The Undoing of Joss Whedon, aren't new. We first got a clue that Whedon might not be the person his fans thought he was when his ex-wife, Kai Cole, wrote a piece in 2017 detailing his affairs and calling him a feminist hypocrite. And after that, cast and crew members from Whedon's former projects started sharing some disturbing accounts of Whedon's alleged abusive behavior that included bullying and threatening. Ray Fisher, the actor who played Cyborg in the Justice League movie, alleged that Whedon's treatment of the cast and crew was gross, unprofessional, and abusive. He also later accused Whedon of making questionably racist changes to the script. And last year, Charisma Carpenter, an actress on both the Buffy and Angel series, alleged that Whedon was verbally abusive to her on those sets, particularly after she got pregnant. And in the Vulture piece, other cast and crew members and a few women he dated seemed to corroborate the allegations that Whedon could sometimes be a jerk who would use his power to intimidate and harass people. But none of that is new. What is new is that the author of the piece, Leela Shapiro, sat down with Whedon and gave him a chance to address the allegations. I talked to Variety critic Caroline Framke about the piece and how she feels about it as a former Whedon fan. One of the things that really struck me about the piece is how damaging it is because of what Whedon is saying in his own defense. He strikes me as like incredibly self-aware in respect to like his own trauma, but he's amazingly dense when it comes to how he comes off when talking about that trauma and, of course, the pain that he inflicted on others. So what was your reaction to the piece? I was just exhausted. I mean, nothing in it was particularly surprising. It was very well reported, and I give such credit to the reporter for what she did with it and how she kind of let him speak his way into these dead ends that he didn't realize were dead ends. But I also recognize something that I think maybe was maybe considered more broadly acceptable or maybe that it was more excusable at a certain point where a man in power could behave badly. But if he like was self-aware about it, then that might be a sign that he's not all bad. And Whedon in the Vulture piece is very much in line with, not for nothing, what his ex-wife wrote, that he knew the power dynamic was messed up, that when he would have relationships with his female employees and actresses on the show, that he was exploiting his workplace because he could, because he grew up feeling like he could never go out with these kinds of women, that he was somehow this very put-upon nerd, even though... He got Buffy when he was 31, so he was running the show at 31. He's from a Hollywood legacy family. There are many things about the way Joss Whedon's life and career unfolded that actually made him not the put-upon dork that he would sell as his image. 
but he knew exactly what he was doing with these women, it seems. And that, to me, makes it worse, almost, rather than if he were completely oblivious to what he were doing. Not that I believe that many of these men who do similar things are completely oblivious to what they're doing. But for me, the ability for him to look at himself and say, I know that this is wrong, but I'm doing it anyway, that's not enough for me because you know where the line is as you're crossing it. Doesn't make it okay that you're crossing it. There are things that are alleged where it seems like he is an asshole, and there are things that are alleged where he seems like he is outright abusive. So to be clear, he's been accused of both. But I think the thing that has made this downfall so damning is because, like you mentioned, the sort of feminist cult um, that was built around him and how he was built up as an icon. So there's this expectation that he is a better man than he actually was. Could you talk a little bit about Joss Whedon and his sort of rise to prominence and like icon status? The Joss Whedon-verse, as it came to be known, encompassing Buffy, its spinoff Angel, Firefly, to a lesser extent Dollhouse, really grew in popularity year after year. Buffy was a show about a blonde teen valley girl, basically, who slayed vampires. It was a movie first that Whedon was very publicly disappointed in because it gave in to a bunch of the Hollywood tropes that he wanted to avoid in the first place. I've been searching everywhere for you, Buffy. Why? To bring you your birthright. My birthright? Is that like a trust fund or something? But the show was very specifically trying to push back against a bunch of Hollywood tropes. Oh, why can't you people just leave me alone? Because you are the slayer. And to each generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world, a chosen one, one born with a strength, strength and skill to hunt the vampires, to stop the spread of their evil, blah, blah, blah. I've heard it, okay? This girl who would otherwise get killed off in the first scene of a horror movie was the greatest warrior of her generation. She was the one who could save the day and did over and over and over again. Personally, I came to Buffy about halfway through it actually airing on TV, but it was the first show that I watched where it made me want to know more about who made the show. I watched the DVD commentaries and special features religiously before podcasts and screenwriting websites were available. Like that was my school. That was what I watched to figure out how TV was made. And I met a lot of people through that too. I made a lot of friends through Loving Buffy and it created these communities. People bonded over loving these shows. There's a whole generation of people who work in the entertainment industry who are, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, are there because of Buffy and the shows it inspired. And can you talk about what the response has been from the larger community since the allegations have come out? How are people reacting and how are people re-examining Buffy now? I feel like at this point... It's been long enough since Buffy first came out that it doesn't completely belong to the person who created it, as I think is the case for a lot of franchises that become this big. Game of Thrones doesn't completely belong to George R. R. Martin. Harry Potter doesn't completely belong to J.K. Rowling. There are so many offshoots of this franchise that I think it would be impossible for people to completely abandon it. Nor do I think they should. One thing I think a lot about is divorcing the art from the artist and so on. And I would never say that looking back at Buffy, that all of it is terrible, like in retrospect. 
There's a lot about the show and the shows that inspired that I still really love. There's a lot about it that I think still holds up, but through the sort of lens of knowing allegedly that Joss Whedon was a terrible boss and that by his own admission and through his own words in the Vulture piece and elsewhere, that he has thought a lot about the dynamics between men and women and has felt throughout his life like he needed to prove himself through sexual conquest and all this stuff. This is all straight from him. It's impossible not to look back at the shows he created through that lens a little bit. And especially because he does put a lot of himself in his shows. As again, he says, when I was writing my own piece about him, the examples of his influence in ways that I hadn't fully appreciated before immediately came to mind. There are so many times women express their sexuality, whether that means coming to terms with the fact that they might not be completely straight or they just enjoy sex in general and they're immediately punished for it. And you can see this when you look at Buffy's relationship with her vampire enemy turned boyfriend turned enemy again, Angel. One of the landmark episodes of Buffy ever was when she loses her virginity to Angel. Was I not good? (laughs) You were great. Really, I thought you were a pro. Can you say this to me? Lighten up. It was a good time. It doesn't mean like we have to make a big deal. It is a big deal. It causes him to literally lose his soul and he goes on a, you know, murderous rampage. We're going to destroy the world. Want to come? Yeah, destroying the world. Great. I'm really more interested in the Slayer. Well, she's in the world, so that should work out. You've really got a yen to hurt this girl, haven't you? She made me feel like a human being. That's not the kind of thing you just forgive. That was a turning point for the show. And I think one generally well done, but it was a very specific choice. (laughs) That doesn't completely hold up the more you look back at it. I think it's tempting to look back at something you loved, knowing that the person who created it might not have been completely on the level and dismiss it entirely. But I think in this instance with Joss Whedon, because of the things he said and because of how much he puts himself in his work, I do think it's fair to look back at it and be like, ah, all right, maybe that's a little bit where that came from. Like, there's a part in the Vulture article where one of his exes or someone he treated poorly talks about how he used to say that he related to the character of Topher in Dollhouse. And Dollhouse is a really interesting show, but it's also the show that when you look back at it now, you're like, that was a little on the nose. (laughs) In their resting state, our actives are as innocent and vulnerable as children. Now imagine creating a new personality, a friend, a lover. And when the engagement has been completed, all memory of you and your time together will be wiped clean. She's living the dream. Whose dream? Dollhouse was a Fox show about a house of dolls, quote, which were these women who, for one reason or another, agreed to be these experiments, basically, where their memories were wiped every day and their bodies were basically rented out for many reasons, some sexual. They got imbued with different skills, etc. But it was basically that they could become whatever the powers that be wanted them to become. And Topher was the scientist who wiped them 
clean every day and was responsible for doing that. Everything go all right with the wipe? Why don't you just ask Echo? Oh, that's right, because she can't remember. <laughs> of course it went all right. Imprint's gone. The new moon has made her virgin again. And when you have the creator of the show saying that this is who he relates to, yeah, that's a red flag. <laughs> that's a red flag. A major one. And I think there are, like, some red flags in the beloved Buffy characters, right? A lot of those characters are seen as these strong feminist icons, right? And I'm wondering, with the understanding that we have now of things, how do you feel those characters, especially the female characters, line up? How do you think about them today? Um, I mean, I still love most of the women characters in Buffy. There was Buffy herself. You have responsibilities that other girls do not. Oh, I know this one. Slaying entails certain sacrifices, blah, blah, bitty, blah. I'm so stuffy, give me a scone. There was Willow, the sort of shy witch who, you know, her powers became too great for her. Uh, hi. Willow, right? Why? I, I mean, hi. Uh, did you want me to move? Why don't we start with, hi, I'm Buffy. And uh, then let's segue directly into me asking you for a favor. It doesn't involve moving, but it does involve hanging out with me for a while. But aren't you hanging out with Cordelia? I can't do both. Not legally. My personal favorite, Anya, who was an ex-demon who was trying to learn how to be human to disastrous, hilarious effect. You can laugh, but I have witnessed a millennium of treachery and oppression from the males of the species, and I have nothing but contempt for the whole libidinous lot of them. Then why are you talking to me? <sighs> I don't have a date for the prom. And there was Cordelia, the sort of former popular girl at the heart of gold. Look, Buffy, you may be hot stuff when it comes to demonology or whatever, but when it comes to dating, I'm the slayer. Charisma Carpenter, who played her, was the first Buffy actor who spoke out against Whedon last year. In order to stand with Ray Fisher, the Justice League actor, she came out and said that Whedon was, quote, casually cruel to her on set, and he gave her a lot of grief when she got pregnant. Whedon allegedly called Carpenter fat when she was four months pregnant and allegedly asked her if she was going to keep it when referring to her baby. I remember watching the Angel season where she got written off. And I remember thinking it was weird at the time that she, her character gets pregnant on the show in a way that really didn't feel in character. And the character really devolves in a way that is humiliating. On Buffy, we see the character Cordelia grow from a self-centered mean girl to a demon-fighting slayer who actually cares about other people. And to a lot of fans, it seemed like Whedon just threw that character development away on the Angel series. In a long and winding story arc, Cordelia becomes part demon, which turns her into a villain instead of a heroine. She eventually gets pregnant by a dark entity, goes into a coma while giving birth, and dies in the hospital unceremoniously and off-screen. And that story trick, killing powerful women off through childbirth, happens to three different characters on the Angel series alone. I remember watching it and thinking, this is a really cruel and weird way for Cordelia, this beloved character, to go. And now with Charisma's insight, it's making a little bit more sense. But for the most part, when I look back at the characters of Buffy, the characters who don't hold up are less the women characters as the male characters who interact with them. Joss Whedon used to say that he actually identified with Buffy as the sort of like person who felt helpless and then got a lot of power and 
didn't quite know what to do with it. But if you rewatch Buffy, the character who feels very akin to what Whedon talks about a lot uh, and talks about feeling a lot is Xander, the former dork turned one of Buffy's best friends. You guys don't have to get involved. What do you mean? We're a team. Aren't we a team? Yeah, you're the Slayer and we're like the Slayerettes. I just don't like putting you guys in danger. Oh, I laugh in the face of danger. Then I hide until it goes away. Over and over again, Xander is this, like, quote, nice guy who's looking out for Buffy, but he's really not. He's making a lot of decisions for her, and he's pretty cruel in ways that maybe we didn't, didn't fully realize. Buffy, I want you to go to the dance with me, you and me, on a date. I just don't think of you that way. I'll try. I'll wait. Xander. No. Forget it. I'm not him. And I guess the guy's got to be undead to make time with you. That's really harsh. Look, I'm sorry. I don't handle rejection well. <laughs> Funny, considering all the practice I've had, huh? It's characters like him or it's characters like Spike, the bad boy vampire who, look, I loved. I had a cardboard cutout of Spike in high school. I was all in on, on this character. But there's a season that comes where he gains a soul. It's a whole big tortured thing. And he tries to sexually assault Buffy. And he still gets redeemed in this way that felt weird at the time. They put the spark in me. And now all it does is burn. Your soul. <laughs> Bit worse for lack of use. Another kind of messed up relationship was Buffy's relationship with the character Riley. Riley was supposed to be one of Buffy's healthier boyfriends. I mean, he wasn't a demon or a vampire. But he just comes off as a little judgmental, insecure, and jealous. Now what possibly could have happened with Buffy that would make you lose your soul? That would be between me and her. Where do you think you're going? Going to see an old girlfriend. Oh, you really think I'm gonna let that happen? Think you're gonna stop me? I surely do. That was Buffy's first year of college, and I know that we all have bad relationships sometimes. We just wanted to shake Buffy and be like, you are the chosen one. Why are you messing around with this? Buffy eventually drops Riley, but jealous, insecure boyfriends come up a lot on the show. Almost too much. One thing that made Buffy really interesting was that it had Monsters of the Week in a sort of procedural setup. And a lot of those monsters, when you look back at them, were possessive boyfriends. There were so many possessive boyfriends who felt these women owed them something and they were the villains, but they were constant in a way that at some point you're like, okay, I get it. <laughs> I get it. But it's clear that this was sort of a preoccupation. Another way Buffy missed the mark is the way the show treated Black and Indigenous characters. Caroline told me that the way the show used characters of color unfortunately lines up with what a lot of TV shows were doing at the time. Creating stereotypical characters whose only purpose is to further the main, usually white, character storyline. A character like Kendra on Buffy, who was a second slayer who stole so many scenes, but was kind of from everywhere and nowhere. Who are you? Who am I? You attack me, who the hell are you? I'm Kendra, the vampire slayer. A nice cover story, but here's a tip. You might want to try it on someone who's not the real Slayer. You can't stop me, even if you kill me. 
Another slayer will be sent to take me place. Could you stop with the slayer thing? I'm the damn slayer. Nonsense. There is but one, and I am she. And got maybe just a few episodes before she died quite unceremoniously and then was replaced by a white actor who was on the show for many seasons. Or, again, these sort of cases of the week were the fact that Sunnydale, the town in which they lived, was on indigenous ground. Like, the only times that would ever come up is when, like, some... Native American curse rose from the ground and and wreaked havoc. The name of this episode is literally Inca Mummy Girl. Literally. I'll say one thing for you Incan mummies. You know, kiss and tell. That felt pretty typical, unfortunately, and it carried through on Angel. Firefly also not great about that, even though Firefly was set in space. I'm Malcolm Reynolds, Captain of Serenity. Got a good crew, fighters, pilot, mechanic. You got a job, we can do it. Don't much care what it is. Firefly was a cowboys in space kind of adventure show. And although it was short-lived, the show was canceled after only 14 episodes. It managed to pack in a lot of Western tropes, like a gang of murderous savages that torment the galaxy. The show also managed to almost completely erase Chinese people, even though the premise is based on the merger of the United States and China. There was no reason to like keep up with these sort of racist tropes in space. You can do anything. Why do that? So when I look at all of this, I wish I had more of an ability to be shocked. But that also just tells me that the problem is so pervasive. But the problem is everywhere. And Whedon has kind of become emblematic of so, the intersection of so many of these problems. When we think about someone like Whedon or even other bad actors in Hollywood who have been called out throughout the Me Too movement and throughout the years since then. And we start to think about the allegations and re-examine their work. It feels like there's this moment where we're all very upset about it. But in the end, it doesn't seem like there's there's a lot of consequence. I mean, and specifically with Whedon, these allegations have been going on for about six years, and he's continued to work since then. Of course, he's lost some projects. And this piece um, actually coming out, which is very ironic because he spoke in a way to defend himself, but he's actually lost more opportunities because of what he said. But in a way, it feels like there hasn't been a lot of consequence for a lot of the bad actors in Hollywood. And I'm wondering how you feel about that, what you've observed, and what is the appropriate response, right, when we have these folks who have been accused of these things but have also been very celebrated because of their work. Yeah, I mean, you know, Whedon gave this interview from his $5 million house in Santa Monica. He's fine. (laughs) He might not be able to work as much, but he's big picture. He's fine. But all you have to do to see how Hollywood is open to letting people back in is look at Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson's working. He's going to be directing a Lethal Weapon sequel. He was in Daddy's Home, a family movie. And he said some truly, truly awful, racist, anti-Semitic, sexist things on tape. So he got an Oscar nomination a few years ago for Best Director. When you're a white man with a certain amount of power in Hollywood, the door is never fully closed. It's always a little ajar, (laughs) waiting for the opportunity to come back in. And I do think that it's important to note that Whedon, his ex-wife came forward about what he had done. Fans were disappointed, but I don't think we really saw material consequences happen for him until his Justice League bombed. He was making money until he wasn't. He was useful until he wasn't. Until these people can't make Hollywood money, they're still useful in some way. So I still think you see 
how kind of making this calculus of being like, all right, well, how bad was it? And how much can we still get away with? So I think if Whedon found a way to get back in Hollywood's good graces or find a way to make more money, he'll come back. It's just a matter of time. And I think there are probably a lot of people who still think, well, what he did wasn't so bad. He was just an insecure guy who got carried away. I would point out to those people that he got carried away over and over again in his workplace with his employees in a way that was detrimental to his production, not just his personal life. I'm not as concerned with what the way forward for him would be. I'm more concerned about what the way forward for the people he belittled and abused and discarded along the way is. Something I think about a lot is the the people and the amount of work that we've missed out on because they have spent years getting over a bad work situation or a bad boss or an abusive partner. Those are the people I care about coming back more than the people who were responsible for that. When people or entities do bad things and it comes to light for the rest of the world to see, we like to call it a reckoning. That time when we're all forced to reconsider what we thought we knew or what we've been ignoring the whole time. For a lot of fans, Whedon's reckoning has been long and painful as they've been forced to deal with the truth about their former icon and the universe he created. But that's the thing about reckoning. The victims and the people who feel betrayed usually bear the brunt of the pain. The wrongdoers have to reckon with the fallout from their actions, of course, but they don't really have to change or truly examine how their actions got them there in the first place. And for all of his acknowledgments of his shortcomings, Joss Whedon still doesn't seem to get it, even though his fans are finally starting to. The older I get, the more I experience of this industry, the more I know in general, the more I am suspicious of people who are very aggressive about saying how progressive they are, about saying how feminist they are, how nice they are, which is a huge threat in the Vulture piece that all the way to this very devastating kicker where the reporter comes to him weeks later after he's apparently gone through therapy and he says maybe the problem is that he was too nice, <laughs> which is pretty stunning. And I respect that Vulture to sort of let that sit there for people to absorb. But the more I'm around people like that, the more I learn to be suspicious of it. Because if you are actually a nice progressive person who gets it, you don't have to go around waving it on a banner. And that's something Whedon did a lot because his show was different. And it was different. It felt different. And so to look back at it through this lens and with this context is deeply disappointing in a way that I think is different from other showrunners who have been disappointing. We're almost six years, five and a half years after Harvey Weinstein exploded open the Me Too movement in Hollywood. I am no longer surprised by basically anyone <laughs> who allegations come out about because obviously the rot runs deep, but it is sad. It is really sad to watch this legacy and the mind behind the show that inspired so many people and created so many communities across, you know, the world and entertainment alike. It's it's really sad. Fashion journalist and former Vogue editor Andre Leon Talley died last week. He was 73 years old. 
Tally was the first Black person to serve as creative director and editor-at-large of American Vogue. But Tally was a lot more than the roles he held. He was an icon in the fashion world, so we wanted to take a moment to remember him with Washington Post senior critic-at-large, Robin Gavon. Could you tell me a little bit about his origins? Who influenced him as a young person and early in his career? He wrote and talked about his grandmother extensively. She was the centerpiece of his life. She was a cleaning woman who worked for Duke University. I think of her as part of that generation of Black Americans whose jobs and whose titles really didn't reflect either their ambition or their abilities. She was someone who was extraordinarily dignified and wise, and she really taught him what it meant to carry himself with dignity. She instilled a deep faith in him, which he carried um, with him when he moved to New York. Tally's other source of inspiration? Vogue magazine. Here he is talking about it in a documentary about his life, The Gospel According to Andre. My escape from reality was Vogue magazine. I actually discovered it in the Durham Public Library. The visual moments of Vogue turned me on. It made me think about style, culture, poetry, music, beauty. I always look forward to the fantasy covers. Girls in gilded cages, it's ornamental, but to the point that it wasn't considered wrong, it was considered right. I loved seeing Pat Cleveland in Vogue. I love seeing Black people in Vogue. I love seeing pictures of Naomi Sims in Vogue. Then I just went completely bonkers. Tally rose through the ranks of fashion at a time when that scene was extremely exclusive and hard to break into for anyone. And he did it as a Black man when there were very few Black people in designer fashion. People talk about how fashion is very cliquish today. Back then, it was like a little secret society. The fashion shows themselves were much, much smaller. They were much more intimate. And the, the brands were also very protective. So, um, you know, just kind of getting in the door was an accomplishment. Then once you were there, the room was populated by people who had connections to maybe European aristocracy, they were socialites, limousine liberals, um, there were snobs. It was a very different environment. And, you know, Andre walked into that and held his own and was able to do so, I think, because of the confidence, the foundation that he had from his upbringing. And I also think it was because he was so knowledgeable about that world. You know, I mean, he knew his history. He knew fashion. He, in some cases, knew it far better than the people who were considered the gatekeepers. So he, he was the epitome of that old adage of, about preparation, preparation, preparation. I mean, he was an incredibly hard worker. But being the first or only of something can be really lonely and traumatizing. And Tally did have to deal with racism. 
you had spoken about some of the most, I guess, egregious incidents. I mean, he was he was called the N-word. This was after a luncheon that he had hosted. You know, one of his guests used the word in referring to him. You know, he talked about um, how he knew that behind his back, some people in the industry referred to him as Queen Kong. I mean, these were terrible, terrible epithets. But he was also of, I think, that generation that also understood that the best way forward was to simply move forward and to do the work and to do the work in the best way that you could and let that speak for itself. And through the work, you made an impact. Um, But he absolutely felt that. He felt the pressure of people believing that because of his position, he had the capacity to just fling open the doors for everyone. He was expected to represent an entire community, and he's just one complicated, flawed human being. And certainly, certainly, he used fashion as armor. You know, he once said to me that he chose his clothing with great intention because he wore it as a form of armor. He was also a champion for other Black people in fashion. His endorsement could go a long way, and he was known for being an advocate for writers and creators he believed in. He even helped P. Diddy when he decided to launch his fashion line, Sean John, at a time where streetwear brands weren't really taken seriously. Another person he celebrated? Robin Gavon. There was a point which I, you know, the post and I went to work at Vogue and, you know, the first person to call and say welcome was Andre. The first person to enthusiastically offer congratulations was Andre. And he, don't get me wrong, I mean, he could be imperious and cutting and all the things that people said, but also once he decided that he was going to open up the gates for his generosity, I mean, it it would just flood out. In later years, Tally had a falling out with his longtime friend and Vogue editor-in-chief, Anna Wintour. Tally talked about it in his last book, a memoir called The Chiffon Trenches. Every relationship has its ups and downs, and, you know, people have their falling, have a falling out. And oftentimes, those, you know, the falling out has no giant dramatic reason for the falling out. Um, It's simply because of little things that add up or people just have different priorities. Although Tally and Wintour both implied that they'd made up, after his death, a lot of people online questioned the lack of response from Vogue and Anna Wintour. Tally's death was announced in the evening. Vogue and Wintour responded early afternoon the next day. And I think after his passing, I mean, her statement in which she essentially says that, yeah, you know, their relationship was rocky towards the end, but it in no way takes away from the fact that they had a very close friendship for decades. As we think about the legacy of Andre Leon Talley, how do you think he would want to be remembered? Um, you know, I think 
He would certainly be delighted that people remembered his personal style and the way that he could make an entrance and the way that he comported himself. But I, I also think that, you know, he would like them to remember that he was someone who was deeply educated in the history of fashion, someone who was forever curious. I think he would want to be remembered as someone who carried himself with dignity and who was proud of who he was. And that's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, host and senior producer of the show. And I work with an amazingly talented team every week to make it possible. Alicia Key is the show's producer. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. The Skim senior director of audio is Graylin Brashear. Thanks to Caroline Framke for talking to us this week. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend.